My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. I'll be your host. And today I uh, get to sit down with actually somebody I, I know quite well. I've interviewed several times on the Leading Saints podcast, and that is Whitney Johnson. How are you, Whitney? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you, Kurt. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, I always look forward to our conversations. I'm glad this uh, podcast gave me one more excuse to, to ask you some questions and to, to learn from you. So, um, well, let's just jump into it as far as um, get, get, getting some of your background and understanding um, what brings you to a podcast where we talk about uh, your Latter-day Saint faith and, you know, MBA school and, and business, uh, you know, professions and whatnot. Uh, so where, where is it where you were raised? Oh, where was I raised? I was raised in San Jose, California. Nice. And what did your parents do for, for a career? Um, my father was a lawyer slash mortgage broker. So he did both. And then my mother was a primarily a school teacher as nice. women were in those days. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, did e either of those professions have an influence on sort of your career path or, or what mm. you thought was going to be your career path? Mm. It's interesting that you asked that. So my mom actually did end up doing things around human potential. Mm. And there's this wonderful quote from... Um, from Carl Jung, who, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, the greatest influence on a child is the unlived life of a parent. And so my mother, for example, always wanted to write a book. And I think my mom wanted to have a more robust career, but it wasn't really in the cards for her. Thank goodness we had people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They're basically uh -huh. the same age. Um, and so I think in many ways, much of what I have striven, I don't know if that's a word, but I have <laughs> wanted to accomplish has been, I think, definitely influenced by some of the aspirations of my mother. Oh, that's interesting. I was actually thinking about this a few days ago. You know, I turn uh, 40 next year and uh, just sort of thinking about where my life's at and uh, maybe a, 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 the butt of a, a midlife crisis. But I thought, man, you know, some of the things that I thought I'd be doing at this point, but then I had the thought of, well, maybe my kids will do that someday. You know, it's not necessarily mm. a failure that I'm not hitting every last goal that I'm doing, but I may be leaving that impression on my kids. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, okay. So, um, let's just, let's just play with this for a second. Okay. I think it's actually really interesting turning 40 because Eric Erickson, a famous developmental psychologist talked a lot about how you have different stages of your life. And uh -huh. one of the things he said is that around the time that you turn 40, you start saying, well, what do I really want to do with my life? Right. And so yeah. when I will frequently ask people in coaching conversations when they're like, I, I'm not sure, maybe I want to change careers. And they think it's a midlife crisis. Um, it's really just this call to, what am I really going to do? And so you use this as an opportunity not to, you know, go buy an expensive car or do something really <laughs> stupid, but to yeah. just reevaluate and say, okay, maybe I'm going to make a pivot. Maybe I'm going to disrupt myself. Maybe I'm going to do something different. Yeah. Um, but it's developmentally 
very, very normal. Good. Well, I, I haven't uh, put the down payment on the Tesla yet, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. One could sure. argue that is a smart purchase. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, and then just growing up or maybe in your young adult life as well, what did you think that you were going to do for a living? Oh, Kurt, this is such a complicated question. So, oh boy. That's um, fine. yeah. Let's so it. I, yeah. So I, um, I had studied music in college, and I think that um, I didn't really know what I was going to be. And I, I don't know if this is true for a lot of people, um, for women in particular. But I had this vague notion that I was going to get married and I was going to have children, and I had majored in music, but I didn't really have any plans for what I was going to do in music. And so um, I went to I went to BYU and I graduated with my degree in music. Um, but when I graduated, I was like, well, now what do I do? And basically, my husband's getting his PhD at Columbia. We're in New York City, and I start working as a secretary for a retail broker. And that was my first job because it was the only job I could get. Um, and then I started at this place of, okay, now what am I going to do and what's what's my work life going to look like? So I am not that prototypical poster child. No, they want to get an MBA from the time that they are 10 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm curious as far as that journey, just from your self-awareness and uh, your self-confidence, because I mean, currently, if there's any conference that's happening anywhere in the world and I hear that Whitney Johnson is speaking, I'm sort of like, oh yeah, of course she is. I mean, that's great. But was there, did you go through this time of like um, imposter syndrome or you thought, no, I'm a music major. What am I doing in these circles? Or why would I write a book? Or why would I even go down this path? Was that a struggle at any point? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because, um, so the, I think early on there was a sense of, um, uh, you know, I'm working on Wall Street and I'm I, as a secretary and I'm saying to myself, I am making X and I'm going to be working for a long time. Why wouldn't I make 10X? So I'm not sure that I was having imposter syndrome because I was uh. working so hard and I graduated from college when I was 27. I mean, talk about late bloomer. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, just yesterday it was announced there's this Thinkers 50 management ranking, and it was announced that I was one of the top 10 management thinkers oh, wow. in the world, that's according awesome. to this poll. And I will tell you, there was a piece of me that's utterly surprised and delighted. And there's another piece of me that's like, what? I, like, <laughs> I, I'm just a music major. I'm not supposed to be on this list. But I had this great conversation with Liz Wiseman, who, as you know, is a has she been on this podcast already? Uh, not yet, but she's definitely oh, but she on her list. She will be. Yes. Oh, okay. That's right. Liz Wiseman, yet to be on the podcast. <laughs> that's right. Um, I had this great conversation because she's also on this list, and she said to me, "You know, Whitney, I want you to eat some of your own cooking, and you talk a lot about S curves of learning. And so, one of the things you have to do is say, okay, so I'm at the launch point of this curve. What do I now do to grow into that and be that person that people perceive you to be? And how do you make sure that you show up and and grow into that role? And so. I think that's a really wonderful way of reframing this idea of imposter of like, here I am, I might be surprised, other people around me might, might be surprised, but I'm going to figure out how to scale that curve. And I think that's a great way to, to reframe yeah, that that's predicament really helpful. we find ourselves in. And uh, what about, did, did you go on a mission or have any, or is there a specific life experience that you felt like was really impacted your faith or spirit, spirituality? Oh yeah, I definitely went on a mission. Um, yeah. So, I um, I think that 
It's interesting. I think there are two things that really impacted my my testimony and my beliefs. So one is that when I was in um, in high school, my parents uh, divorced, and my dad was sort of like he, he believed, but he wasn't really very committed to the gospel, and you know did a lot of made a lot of um, bad decisions. And my mom was sort of I believe, but I'm not sure I do. And so there was a lot of um, sort of uncertainty and not feeling tethered and grounded in my home life. And I'm the oldest child. And so that was sort of complicated. And I think that for me, I really relied on Heavenly Father and I really relied on my testimony and I really relied on my faith as an anchor. And so for high school, that was really important for me growing up. And then I did go on a mission and I really wanted to go on a mission. Like I was one of those people that was like, please don't tell me I have to get married because I want to go on a mission. Like that's Uh how much I wanted to go. And I went, you know, as soon as I I could turn in my papers, I turned in my papers and I went to Uruguay. Um, but what's interesting is that I did have my crisis, if you will, in my 20s. And that is, by the way, again, according to psychologists, not unusual because in our 20s, yes. we have to make that decision of like, do I really believe this? Like, I know this is what my parents did and maybe I was rebelling because I was individuating from my parents, but now I'm in my 20s and I get to do whatever I want. Do I actually believe? And so for me, it was in my 20s after I was already married that I finally made the decision, no, this is actually the life that I want to live. I, I want to live a life of faith and, and belief in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day yeah. Saints. And then summarize just your uh, your. Uh, college uh, journey for us that uh, you've touched on your your undergrad with, with music was there anything after that or, or did you think about it or did you try or anything like that you mean what do you mean like try something else or as far, no as far as just like uh your college years or college education yeah okay all right well so fun fact is that i applied to byu i applied to ucla i applied to stanford i got on the wait list for stanford ucla i got into but i didn't know i got into they didn't notify me until oh, no. i was already at byu <laughs> i went to byu um i was there for a year went home for a year and a half to work i went back then i went on my mission then i came back i had a hundred 180 credits when I graduated from college, by the way, you only need 120. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, just didn't kind of wasn't able to find myself exactly. I I, I sound like a real slacker, don't I? Just this lost (laughs) little soul. Everyone who is listening, take comfort, lost souls unite. Um, And I think that um, interestingly enough, I would say, and I think sometimes people feel like marriage is is something that um, uh, is an albatross uh, for people in terms of aspirations and hopes and dreams. And I would say that for me, the opposite was the case is that this person who was a little bit unmoored and unsure of what she wanted to do, I started to get grounded in the sense of possibility and who and what I could be as a consequence of actually getting married Hmm. Hmm. to a good man. That's right. And, and tell us uh, yeah. about that, your, your family. I know you, I, if I remember right, uh, two kids and a great husband. Yeah. <laughs> great husband. Number one. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I have a husband, one husband, okay, not good. two or three. Um, and then we have two children. We have a son, David, who's at Utah state and then a daughter, Miranda, who is at Southern Virginia university. Yeah. And what, what do you think they'd say if I was to interview them and say, like, what do you think of your, what your mom does and the book she writes and her, her career? I mean, do, do they dismiss it? Like maybe like a lot of kids do or, or how's that influence them? 
Totally. I remember once a couple of years ago, someone said to me, your children must think you're so awesome. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, in all seriousness, they love me. I'm their mother and they adore me, but I, you know, they, they also, as children do, they see your underbelly and they see they're your truth teller. So they, they love you, but they also see everything that, you know, could be better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then um, anything else about your career path? You sort of talked about your um, your early career and and you know the the levels you went through and whatnot. But uh, anything else to fill in the gaps to, to now as an author oh, and consultant? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll give you a quick super drive by of my resume just to kind okay. of catch everybody yeah. up now that we've talked about the the early years. So um, after you know, I, I said I started on Wall Street working as a secretary, and after a few years, I I had this big aha of. Um, like I said, I was working a lot of hours. My husband's PhD was going to take seven years. And I thought to myself, why would I make X when 10, 10X is a possibility? And I think this aspiration of my mother, et cetera, just started to kick in. And so I started taking classes at night, accounting, economics, finance, and was eventually had a boss who moved me from being a secretary to an investment banker. And people, all you MBA students know that in financial services, that does not happen, but I had a boss who gave me a shot. And so then I moved into investment banking. I did that for several years, um, then moved into equity research and was an institutional investor ranked equity analyst for eight years. Disrupted myself, went to become an entrepreneur. We had the two children all along that way. And then I co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clayton Christensen, the late Clayton Christensen. Clayton Christensen, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man, um, did that for about um, five, six years and then disrupted myself again. And then in 2012, um, said, okay, I've got these ideas around disruption. And I know we're going to talk about this in a minute, that it's yeah. not just about products, it's about people. And so I went off on my own and have written a book called Dare, Dream, Do, and Disrupt Yourself and Build an A-Team. And now I have Smart Growth coming out. And I'm the CEO of Disruption Advisors, which is a tech-enabled talent development company where we help people figure out where they are in their growth and then wrap coaching and workshops around it. So I'm now an entrepreneur. So that awesome. that's a quick, quick rundown of, yeah. of what I've done in the intervening years. Yeah. And you've written some awesome books that I've really enjoyed uh, for everything from Disrupt Yourself to Build an A-Team. And then you have a, a new book called Smart Growth that's coming out early 2022, right? That's correct. Nice. And is what what is how is this book... Uh, book process different? or manuscript process been different or what anything unique or is it oh, sort of going through the same yeah. process? Um, I think it's different every time. So, so, um, uh, so this was different because I realized, so we had written disrupt yourself and, and that was this idea of, you know, disruptions, not just about products, it's about people. And then we wrote build an A team. And that was taking these frameworks of disruption that we had developed to help people build and configure teams. But one of the things that happened, um, as a sort of not as a consequence, but people were saying, okay, I get this idea of disruption as a mechanism to move forward. And, and for those of you who are listening, if you really think about what self-disruption is, it's actually repentance in a good way. <laughs> um, and, but people were saying, I need this, I, I need this, 
I need this map. I need this understanding of the terrain. I need to understand sort of where I'm going. And I realized that the S-curve that was kind of running in the background in both of those books was actually that map. And so what I've Mm -hmm. done in Smart Growth is said, okay, you want to grow, you want to understand what it looks like. Let me walk you through what it looks like and really do a deep, deep dive on this S-curve of learning as a simple visual model of growth. Yeah. Love that. And and it's interesting. I could probably talk to any Latter-day Saint author and whatever book they write, especially, you know, business book or whatnot, there are clear aspects of the atonement of Jesus Christ there. I mean, truth is truth and you're going to find it in the church or outside the church or everywhere because that's what Mm -hmm. works, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Love it. So, uh, as we do, I had you prepare a few points that we can discuss, um, to kind of go through that maybe be helpful for uh, those maybe MBA students or those uh, young professionals out there trying to find their footing in the, in the professional world. But before we do that, I always want to jump on an opportunity to honor the name of Clayton Christensen. He did so much for the Latter-day Saint MBA mm-hmm. Society and encouraged us. And I mean, it goes on and on, spoken at many of the conferences, whatnot. And I, I, of course, I, I mean, remarkable man and some amazing thinking, well-respected around the world. But what would you want this audience to understand about the man that Clayton Christensen was? Oh, such a great question. And you know what? I'm going to say this now, but we'll come back to it. Okay. Um, I think that for me, um, being able to be in such close proximity to him. So uh, over the course of about a decade, first in my calling in public affairs and then in co-founding this fund, is the thing that was so, for me, the biggest legacy was that he did not separate the secular from the spiritual. Hmm. They were they were both. I mean, they, it was one and the same. So he brought church to work and he brought work to church and he didn't compartmentalize. And that has been something that has really stayed with me. And especially now, because I have a calling that's involved in missionary work where I think, you know, we need to, we need to stop compartmentalizing and we need to show up and we need to, in our workplace, be willing to talk about who we are and what we believe and how we live our lives. And so that to me is the biggest legacy of how he modeled that behavior so beautifully and so brilliantly for, you know, love, share and invite. He was doing it 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's just a powerful individual, and I'm glad mm-hmm. uh, glad we got to experience him in some level in mortality yes. here. Yes. Uh, all right, well, let's jump into these principles. There's there's six that we'll go over here, and uh, you're very good at walking us through the, these steps and and unpacking them, and so such applicable uh, information and knowledge here. So the first one is growth is our default setting. Unpack that for us. Yeah. All right. So what I wanted to do as you asked me to think about these principles is I'm thinking as I'm talking to all of you who are MBA students or recent MBA students is thinking about these ideas and and how they apply to you in the workplace and as you go out into the world. And so you hear me say growth is our default setting. That is the very first sentence in my upcoming book. And you're probably saying to you, well, duh, like, of course it is. Of course, growth is our default setting. And I would say to you, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you absolutely know that. And I would also say to you that many, 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 many people in the world do not know that. So when we hear Mm. President Nelson say, our spirits long to progress, you're like, yeah, duh, but people don't know that. And Mm. so when I think about this book that I've written, and I want you all to think about this idea, is that um, this book of talking about the S-curve of learning, my deep hope is, is that it will be a secular primer 
on eternal progression. Hmm. And people long to progress. They long to know what growth looks like. They long to believe that they can continue to grow and to and make progress in the world. And so that's the first thing that I, I want to say. And I, I think that um, um, to bring this all together, this idea of growth as our default setting is, is this is something that you know intuitively, but the people around you don't. And so if you can tap into this Everybody you coach, everybody you lead, everybody you manage is that they yearn, they desire to grow. If you understand that and you remember that and know that they know that intuitively, even if they don't know it intellectually or rationally, that is an important thing for you to know. Now, here's the story. Just last week, I was in Denmark. And I was speaking at this conference there. And afterwards, I was at a dinner with a number of CEOs. And they were asking me this question. One of the people had gone to MIT. And he's Danish. And he said to me, Whitney, why is it that so many members of your church over-index in being CEOs of companies in the world? He's like, why is that? And I will confess that I faltered some in trying to answer. I'm like, well, you know, we believe in education, et cetera, et cetera. I wish... I had thought of this then. The good news is I thought of it later, and I sent him an email (laughs) with this note. I basically said to him, I shared with him Elder Gilbert's talk about the parable of the slope. Hmm. And if you remember at the very end of the talk, he was talking to this educator who said, well, why is BYU Pathways so successful? And he talked about mentoring a number of programs. And then he finally said to him, we are taught, we believe that we are sons and daughters of God with divine possibility. And so I say to each one of you, our spirits long to progress, you betcha. And as you go out into the workforce, remember the fact that you know this, that growth is your default setting is definitely one of your superpowers. So yeah. that is my first principle that I am pounding the table on, Kurt. <laughs> nice. I love it. Because I, <laughs> there are those moments I would imagine, whether that's you know during MBA school or in, just in a busy professional life where you think, "Ah, maybe I'm not cut out for this. You know, this is really hard. And I don't know if I can solve these problems that are before me. But the reality is, is like you were divinely designed to figure out really difficult problems and march, march on and, and you'll figure it out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and back to the, go back and everybody go back and read that, that talk from Elder Gilbert, because one of the things he said is that he was not remarkable in school. And then I'm paraphrasing and I wish I had it memorized. I need to memorize it. He said, everything changed for him when he started to involve God in systematic, systematically in his development. Yeah. And so to what you just said, if we bring, bring God into that process, we will achieve that divine potential. Yeah. And is there anything, any habits or routines that you have uh, that, you know, to make sure that you bring God into the processes that, you know, whether it's writing a book or, uh, you know, running your, your organization, um, any, any routine specifically, or is it mainly just having that mindset? Um, I, well, I think you have to have a specific routine so that you keep that mindset. So, Hmm. so for example, one of the goals that I have right now, and this is, again, something that I learned from Clay. And you may have heard this, but I remember hearing, and I had not known this, one of his children, I think it was Michael, his middle son, said at his funeral is that initially Clay was a pretty ordinary teacher. And then everything changed when he started praying before every class. Hmm. 
And so one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is number one is I have goals. My behavioral goals every day is to think about why am I doing what I'm doing? So not just this day to day, I've got these 10 things to do, but why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing this because I want to help with the gathering of Israel including myself getting gathered. And then the second thing that I've actually set as a goal for myself is to pray for the people that I work with. And when you start praying for them, you're going to see them differently. You're going to treat them differently. And that goes back to that lesson learned from Clay. So I I do, um, yes, you have that mindset, but there are daily behaviors that we have to put in place that reinforce that mindset so that so that idea, that that lovely lofty notion actually gets effectuated or, or, or operationalized in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just creating that space, right? Like, uh, the Clayton Christensen example, just creating the space to stop, pause, recognize God, recognize the divinity that makes you divine. Um, mm-hmm. and then making, you know, inviting him into that process. And, and then maybe that, you know, that can feel cliche, like, yeah, we got to do our scripture study every day, but even just, because you can get so, I, I find this myself, we get so, uh, you know, wake up in the morning, I, I got a, thing, a list of things that mm-hmm. I got to do. Here I go, right? And uh, mm-hmm. but stopping, creating that space and inviting uh, God to step into these processes. And that's really where the, the remarkable work comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right. The next principle is we're made to act and not be acted upon. Okay. This is one of my favorite scriptures everywhere. Um, (laughs) Not everywhere, ever. Second Nephi chapter um, two, verse 26, they have become free forever to act for themselves and not be acted upon. I think I probably try to insert this quote into every book that I write. (laughs) Um, And I, I think the reason that I love this so much, and this is actually really an underlying principle of the the framework of personal disruption is this notion of agency that, again, going back to each of you LDS MBA students, there are all these things that you, because there's so much they're so reflexive for you and so much of the air that you breathe are like, of course we have agency, but not everybody knows that. They don't know that we were made to act and not be acted upon. They don't know that we have agency. And so that to me is really powerful. And that underlies this framework of personal disruption. Um, this notion of there are many circumstances that are outside of our control, but there is so much that is within our control. And, and so one of the big ahas for me in working on Wall Street is once I discovered disruptive innovation and this, you know, silly little thing could take over the world, I realized, okay, this isn't just products, this is also people, and that we can basically upend who we are today. We can step back from who we are today to slingshot into who we want to be. And if we want to make progress, we're continually disrupting ourselves. And this idea or notion that you can disrupt yourself is acting. It's not Mm. allowing yourself to be acted upon. It is acting. And when we know, and and one of the things that I found during the pandemic, and I think most of us have, is when we allowed ourselves to be, oh, the pandemic happened to us, we were in this place of of slight despair. But when we said, okay, this pandemic is happening, but what am I going to do? How am I going to disrupt myself? How am I going to respond to it? How am I going to act and not be acted upon? For me, it was a game changer. And I think for any of us who are listening to this, you realize that that moment when you had that shift, the pandemic shifted from being this bad thing to this huge opportunity to grow and progress. 
Yeah. I, I love this idea, this, this doctrine in the context of the term of disruption, because it's easy for someone to say, Hey, listen, Winnie, I, I, I act every day. I wake up, I go to work. I, you know, I provide for my family, but there's gotta be this like disruption element to of, and I'm sure many MBA students have felt that like, wait, I, I never intended to go to MBA school. I was just, I was fine in my career, but then I felt a higher calling, calling to me. Your God was saying, no, 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 we're going to disrupt your life. You're going to go to school and that's going to be hard. And, but at, at the end of it, that disruption becomes such a growth opportunity because you acted on the disruption rather than just carried on with your routine life. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. All right. The next principle is a play where no one else is playing. <laughs> All right. So this is, um, so in the framework of personal disruption, there are seven accelerants of growth. And um, the very first one is to take the right kinds of risk, which is basically you take the right kind of risk by playing where no one else is playing. And this is, this is based on the theory of disruption. So if you go back and you read Innovator's Dilemma, what you will find is that the odds of success are six times higher and the revenue opportunity 20 times greater when you're willing to take on market risk, when you're willing to play where no one else is playing. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example in my own career, because this may be very helpful to all of you who are listening. So I'm working now on Wall Street and I'm an equity analyst or not an equity analyst, excuse me, I'm in investment banking and my boss gets fired. And they probably would have fired me too, except that I had really strong performance reviews and I happened to be pregnant at the time. And you don't fire people with strong performance reviews who are pregnant. But they, <laughs> so they didn't fire me. But what they did do is that they shoved me into equity research, which, if you know financial services, it's kind of like going from fighting, flying a fighter plane to a cargo plane. Like, so my ego takes this mm. huge hit. Mm. So I was disrupted, right? But here's what happened. I get into equity research, and this is this idea of playing where no one else is playing. I get into equity research. I'm supposed to cover the cement and construction sector, but they have another merger. They have a cement and construction analyst. So as the theory of disruption would dictate, rather than knocking on a cement door that was clearly closed, so taking on competitive risk, because that's, so there's competitive risk. I took on market risk and that's playing where no one else is playing. And by taking on market risk where there was no analyst because it was a brand new sector, it was a media sector, no one's covering it, playing where no one else is playing, within one year I became a ranked analyst. And so yeah. by playing where no one else is playing, by building my own door, I built a door for my company. And so the thing that I want you to all be thinking about in your own career is look for opportunities. Yes, you can go after jobs where 50 other people are going after it. And sometimes you'll get it and sometimes you'll compete and win, but you're going to win a lot more when you're willing to play where no one else is playing. And early on, it's going to feel lonely because no one else is there, but that's how you create markets. That's how you end up being, um, being able to make these sort of outsize um, contributions, right? Odds of success are six times higher. So that's this idea of play where no one else is playing. And the only other thing I would say on this is for you as a new MBA student, one of the most important ways you can play where no one else is playing is simply to take initiative. When you see a problem, don't just identify the problem. Go to the people around you and say, I see this challenge. Here's what I think we can do to solve it. Here's what I propose I do. Are you okay if I go after that? And when mm. you take that initiative, 
oh, by the way, there are so many people that are not playing in that initiative playing ground. That is how you're going to differentiate yourself very quickly, very rapidly. Every person, every boss you ever have will want you on their team because so few people actually take initiative. So that's another sort of more metaphorical way or figurative yeah. way to take take the right risk, but super, super powerful. Yeah. And is there any other um, questions or ways we can identified to make sure that we're in that that market risk area that we're uh i mean because sometimes maybe we, we don't know or, or you know i'm not sure where where other opportunities are so is there any ways to analyze where we're at mm, how to take on market risk so i think that um uh I think I think you you sometimes know it more by what it isn't. So, for example, okay. if you're going after a job and there's, like I said, 50 people that are going after, that's definitely competitive risk. Market risk is more of saying, looking around you and saying, someone ought to do that thing. Or there's a problem over there someone ought to solve. Those guys ought to solve that problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good example of market <laughs> risk. Gotcha. Is there's no one solving it or no one's taking the initiative to do it. And so that's when you start to say, there might be a place for me to play here that other people aren't playing. Let me go, let me go, let me go play with that for a minute and see what happens. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine in a, in a very structured um, context, it, it becomes a little more difficult. For example, uh, you know, being a student, an MBA student, where you're in a class and maybe the, the professor is giving you the syllabus, like this is where uh -huh. we're going. Like I'm clearly drawing the lines. This is the book we're reading. This is the the assignments. These are the days we're having tests. And so it feels like, well, I mean, there's not much for me to do here. I mean, he's laid it out. I, you know, I guess I can't step out of the lines here. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let me push back. You know, having right, having having a husband who's a professor and two children who are in college. <laughs> let me give you my my two cents on that one. Right. Um, I think that you know you're you're right. There's a lot that is already very um, very proscribed or maybe proscribed is not the right word. Very sort of structured already. Yeah. But what I would argue is that um, how many times have we seen you say to them, why don't you go talk to your professor and get their opinion on something? Or why don't you mm. go talk to your professor and say, well, have you thought about this? And why don't you go talk to your professor and get their suggestion on X, Y, or Z? And they're like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Why? Yeah. Because it's uncomfortable. And yet that is playing where no one else is playing because 95% of the students don't go have that conversation with this professor who is waiting, hoping, praying, pleading that you as a student will come to them and say, I need your help. I want your advice. I mean, that's why they became a professor in the first yeah, exactly. place. It's not for the high pay, right? right. <laughs> and so that is an example of playing where no one's is playing. So yes, there's that there, the very sort of concrete way of it, but I really want you as students to think about this much more of like, how do I go and have these conversations that I know that 99% of my peers aren't having? Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I had uh, a few years, I was an adjunct professor at uh, Enzyme College and, and I was always just amazed how the students acted exactly how I acted, which was, all right, just tell me what you need me to do to get that A and I'll move on, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but it was the students who kind of, and I've often encouraged it, like, you know, what are we missing here? Like what angle could we take here that isn't on the syllabus or isn't in the format that the, the, college has given me, right? And right. I think most professors or bosses or whomever will be open to at least explore the possibilities of maybe how to create some disruption. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. And then uh, the fourth principle is play to your strengths. Okay. 
<laughs> so this is the um, accelerant number two. And by the way, on play to play, uh, play where no one else is playing. We do have a podcast episode. If you want to do more work on that, it's disrupt yourself podcast episode 100 and then okay. play to your strengths is podcast episode 120. So let me talk awesome. about this I'll for a second. So, so play to your distinctive strengths. Now, one of the things that you may be thinking is, okay, well, I don't know what my strengths are maybe. And so let me give you two clues. Number one is your strengths are going to be things that when people give you compliments, um, they're holding up a mirror to you. And typically you're going to deflect that thing that they're telling you. Um, you need to start listening to them. In fact, get out your phone and ask them to repeat it and then record it so you can go back and listen to it <laughs> because they're basically telling you, this is what you're good at. The other thing that you can do is say, what do you find yourself exasperated when you say, this is just common sense. Everybody knows how to do this. That again is a clue to you that you've got a strength. And so number one, I want you to be thinking about what are my strengths actually um, so that you can play to them. Now, the second reason that we sometimes don't play to our strengths is that because they're so reflexive, because it's so natural to us, we don't think it could possibly, possibly be valuable. Um, and therefore, we don't want to do something that leverages them because it's not valuable. And yet, if you're going to make this idiosyncratic, valuable contribution to the world, you need to know what your strengths are. A couple of other thoughts that I want you to think about. I want you to go back to your patriarchal blessing. Hmm. And I want you to read, what are your gifts that you have been given in your patriarchal blessing? What are your spiritual gifts? Because if everything to the Lord is spiritual, then that means he wants you to use your spiritual gifts, not only at church and at home, but he also wants you to use them at work. And I love in Doctrine and Covenants section 46, it says, to each is given a gift. And then the final thing that I, well, I don't know if it's the final, <laughs> the next thing I mm. want to say to you is that one of the strengths that you have as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that you have had a lot of practice of exercising moral courage. You've had so many experiences of people saying, why don't you go drink or why don't you go sleep around or why don't you cheat on a test or why don't you X, Y, and Z and A, B, and C. And mm -hmm. time after time after time, maybe not every time, but many times you have said, no, I'm not going to do that. You've made a good decision. So you have a muscle a very well-developed muscle, again, relative to many of your peers, of knowing how to exercise moral and ethical courage. And this is a strength. This is something that you do well that many people do not. And I want to read a wonderful, wonderful quote to you. It's from President Kimball. It's back in the 70s. It's from the Gospel Vision of the Arts. And he said this, and he refers only to men, so we're going to do women too. He says, oh, how our world needs statesmen. We have the raw material, we have the facilities, we can excel in training, we have the spiritual climate, we must train statesmen, not demagogues, individuals of integrity, not weaklings who for a mess of pottage will sell their birthright. You must be trained so thoroughly in the arts of the, your future work and in the basic honesties and integrities and spiritual concepts that there will be no compromise of principle. And so I want to say to you again, 
superpowers coming out of your MBA is you have a superpower of having courage and of having integrity. And this is so valuable and it is a strength, but in many ways it is a distinctive strength. And I want to encourage you strongly to remember and recognize and value it and own it. Mm. Love that. That's powerful. Love that. Uh, Anything else as far as a play to your strength that we haven't hit on? Just value what it is you do well. Appreciate it. Be grateful for it. And um, don't dismiss it because it's easy for you. Hmm. Awesome. Next principle is step back to grow. How do you mean? This is so fun. Thank you for asking these really good questions. Um, <laughs> sure. Okay, so uh, step back to growth. So this is um, this is accelerant number five in the framework of personal disruption. And so I want to just articulate for you. So if you think about what is personal disruption, I want you to draw this graph in your mind. So you've got the y-axis and you've got the x-axis. And so let's say in your life, you're on the y-axis at 12. So your intercept's 12 and your slope is over one, up one, over one, up one. And when you disrupt yourself, so as Kurt was saying earlier, you make the decision to go back to school and you think you've lost your mind, or at least someone in your life thinks you've lost <laughs> your mind, What you're because you're sacrificing all this income, you're saying, I'm going to go from a 12 to a 10. I'm going to step back because I believe in the future that my slope will be an over one up three or over one up five. So you step back to slingshot forward. And when you disrupt yourself, whether it's mobility in your career, whether it's making a decision to stop doing something that you were doing or start doing something like exercising that you weren't doing, you are disrupting who you are so that you can move forward. So that's the math of personal disruption. Now, Uh I'll give you two other quick examples of this idea of step back to grow. One of the things that's been really interesting, Kurt, recently is we have this S-curve insight tool that people can see where they are on their growth curve. And one of the things that people are really challenged to do is to step back to reflect and step back to rest, Mm -hmm. which is interesting, isn't it? Again, we're going back to what are the superpowers that you have as members of the church is that you have been learning since the time you were very young to reflect. Moroni chapter 10, verse 3, remember how merciful the Lord hath been to keep journals, to write down what worked, what didn't. And so when we reflect on the day and we ask Heavenly Father, what can I do differently? That's taking a step back in order to move forward. And the second big thing, the muscle that we have that we don't even realize that we have is that we have been practicing ever since we've been members of the church or Christians generally is to keep the Sabbath day holy. Yeah. That's stepping back. And I want to read you this wonderful quote from Tiffany Schlein. She wrote a book called 24-6. She's um, Jewish by, by heritage and two actual quotes. She says, what if we thought of rest as technology? The promise of technology is that it makes things efficient, it saves time, it allows us to get things done. And by giving yourself a day off each week, letting you reflect and connect and resting or and connect resting becomes the ultimate technology. And then wow. she says, this is my last quote for you on this. Our tech Shabbat is a force field of protection that gives us the strength, resilience, perspective, and energy for the other six days. Hmm. Step back 
to slingshot forward. Yeah, that's so there's, it's just so grounding, right? In, in that context that, and I think of my typical, you know, Sabbath day experience, it's typically a lot of, yeah, there's something different about the day. And I, you know, I have young kids that I'm sort of trying to uh, highlight that like, yeah, it's Sunday, like this day is different. Right. But sometimes we just make it different because it's supposed to be different when in reality, there's not so much of a stepping back or a reflection on that. Mm. You know, they're mm-hmm. just, yeah, we're doing something different day. We're going to get through so we can get on a Monday and get on with our life here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. to really be intentional about that and uh, reflecting on how you can better reflect, right? Is, can yeah. go along, right? <laughs> <laughs> reflect on how to better reflect. And you know what I love, Kurt, is I love when we hear studies and like, research, scientific research, or we hear people from other disciplines or other faiths teach us things that help us understand our own faith better. I just yeah. find that really powerful and yeah. really potent and, and, and helpful. Yeah. <laughs> you discover the, the, the brilliance of having the seventh day of, of, of rest and God's thinking, well, yeah, I literally created that at the beginning. Like <laughs> this is, I'm glad you're picking up on this. So that's awesome. Uh, and then the final uh, principle you have down here is uh, be driven by discovery. Mm, yeah. So this is the, the very final um, accelerant of personal disruption. And so if you think about disrupting, you're playing where no one else is playing. It means that you don't know where you're going to end up. Um, and um, by definition, you, you don't know where you're going to end up. And I think that um, this is, you know, if you think about Lehi's family, right, they live in Jerusalem, they leave, they think they're done, they go to Canaan, they think they're done, they build a ship, they, they keep thinking they're done. And mm. you hear that wonderful scripture from Nephi where he says, and I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things that which I should do. And so, um, again, going back to being members of the church and believing what we believe is this being driven by discovery. Yes, we have these conventional planning of I'm going to do this and then this and then this and then this. And there are times where that is absolutely appropriate. Like I'm going to read my scriptures every day. But in life, generally, what we're doing is we're taking a step forward, we're gathering feedback, and then we're adapting. And what I love and what I'm so grateful about, and I want everybody who's an MBA student to really think about is this doesn't just apply to family and church. I mean, remember what President Nelson said in General Conference. I'm going to read this to you because I love it. He says, through the manifestations of the Holy Ghost, the Lord will assist us in all our righteous pursuits. He says, I remember in an operating room, I have stood over a patient unsure how to perform an unprecedented procedure and experienced the Holy Ghost diagramming the technique in my mind. And so, God wants to bless you in your work. And one of the things that I've found so interesting, Kurt, is I actually coach a lot of people who are members of the church. And I have been fascinated when I will talk to them about trying to make a decision of what they're going to do. And I'll say, have you prayed about it? And they'll say, no, I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. And so I want to say to each one of you, if I could say to you personally, is don't live belief beneath your privileges. Like you've been given this gift of the Holy Ghost, the power of revelation, this ability to take a step forward and gather all this revelation and in order to know what to do to move forward. And so that is the that is the last one that I want to say to you is that it is, well, actually he said this, it's the grand privilege of every Latter-day Saint to have the manifestations of the Spirit every day of our lives. Wow. So good. Well, Whitney, this has been 
so insightful. I mean, again, I always enjoy our, our conversations. Um, and tell us about, uh, I have a few things I want to make sure you plug here because I definitely enjoy your podcast and then your books, of course. So your new book coming out in January of 2022, is it, would you say, is it a sequel to Disrupt Yourself or is it a completely different approach or similar principles, but different approach? Yeah, it, it builds. I mean, so basically what this book does is, as I said at the very beginning, is I want it to be this this secular permanent and eternal progression. And I, I outline, okay, here's the S curve. It gives you this model for what growth looks like. And then I talk about, I have six different chapters of like, here's what you do at the launch point. You explore and then you collect data. And here's what the sweet spot looks like. And you, you accelerate and then you metamorph. And then here's what the mastery looks like where you anchor the behavior. And then you're this mountaineer. You have to keep climbing because the growth cycle has to continue. And here's what the ecosystem needs to look like. And it's written to the individual. There's some BYU graduates in the book, like, I think he's a BYU grad. Yeah. Jeremy Andrus, right? Mm-hmm. He's in yeah. the book. So you've yeah. got people we've like interviewed that. him on this podcast. So. Well, there you go. So <laughs> we're plugging go. Jeremy Andrus today right. here live. And, um, and so it's focused on the individual, but then I have all these interludes where I say, here's how you can apply it as a leader. Here's how you can apply it in your organization. So, so you'll know that you're swimming in the same pool, but it is a totally, totally different book. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to read it. And uh, what about your podcast? Obviously, they can find it anywhere uh, they're listening to this podcast, but uh, anything you'd add about your podcast? Um, well, I love doing my podcast. Um, it's so fun and so interesting. I would say for those of you who are listening that are thinking, um, it's interesting because you get to interview interesting people. Um and for those of you who are listening, you're thinking, okay, I want to do more work on this. You can go listen to episode 80, which is on disrupt yourself. Mm-hmm. Episode 100, like I said, take the right risks. Episode 120, which is play to your distinctive strengths. And that's a great place to start. But we also have guests like Brene Brown and Simon Sinek and Stephen M. R. Covey. So really, really Scott O'Neill, some really, really interesting people. Yeah. Awesome. And you've even uh, been consistent with your newsletter, which is always insightful. And, you know, a lot of people give the newsletter a try and, uh, you know, be consistent with it, but you've, you've done it. So that's so many ways to uh, capture your knowledge and perspective on these things. So Winnie, last question I have for you is if imagine you're in a room full of MBA students or young professionals, maybe even the the older professionals, what Mm -hmm. final advice would you give them? Yeah. All right. We're going to go back to where we started. And when we talked about clay is secular and spiritual are the same thing. Bring Mm. church to work and bring work to church. That would be my advice. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA society.